Welcome back to another episode of Pocket Law Talks. This is your host, Brad. Over the way in his normal spot is producer Devin. Hey, how's it going? Today we're going to take a look at a current case that's going on, a current trial that's going on. Uh, dates back to all the way um, in 2018 uh, involving a rapper that goes by the, uh, I guess, stage name, of, if you will, of YNW Melly. Uh, his legal name is Jamel Demons. Very interesting name for someone uh, charged with uh, double murder, which is what he's in trial for right now. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his um, the, the case, the charges that he's uh, currently facing, and a little background information also on on you know who he is and 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 why his uh, trials I guess catching so much notoriety as we as we speak. Right. So this is a younger rapper. He's uh, he's he's fairly new. Um, he I think his most recent or his earliest single released was in 2017 um his stage name is YNW Melly and YNW most people think it is it's related to a gang but it's not it's just kind of like his call sign and YNW stands for you're not welcome so you're not welcome Melly his real name is Jamel Demons and that is a badass last name and but when you think think of what he's being accused with it's kind of fitting he's a very popular rapper he's made songs with the likes of Kanye West and under his current moniker, like I said, since 2017, it's uh, there, it's possible that he's released songs prior to that, but... He's known for the stuff he's released under Wyatt. Un, yeah, under this moniker. And they tend to kind of like disown the stuff that they've done beforehand when they change monikers because clearly that wasn't working for them. He's released two studio albums, two mixtapes, one extended play, and 29 singles, all within the span of like two and a half years before he uh, turned himself in. His best song is Murder on My Mind. It went platinum six times. When it first came out in the summer of 2018, literally everybody was listening to it. If you listened to the radio at all or you went anywhere out in public, you probably heard some tidbits of this song. However, this song... I've even heard of that one. Yeah. However, this song details him killing two of his best friends and why he did it. There are also multiple other songs referring to the people he loved snaking him, which means to like set him up or rob him, to do him dirty, basically going behind his back, you know, the whole snakes in the grass, gotta cut the grass type of thing. Um, and he references people snaking him and that he had to kill them. And little did people know that these songs actually described reality, and two years later from the song's release date, he was charged in a double, double homicide of two people confirmed to be his be- quote-unquote best friends at the time. Now, of course, there's a little bit of discrepancy if these people were actually his best friends or if they were gang members trying to extort him, but that's something that we're going to get in later. This is going to be a three-part episode, most likely, so we're going to go into this in really big detail. The trial's still ongoing, so we're not going to get too much into the trial today, but it will be the next episode. We just want to make sure we have all the facts for you guys. Week three already of the trial. Yeah, yeah, three weeks. Incredible to me, as somebody that's done a, a, a number of murder trials, I... The longest trial I've had was six days. We started on a Monday and we finished on a Saturday. Uh, it's just incredible to me how some of these jurisdictions can drag a, a trial out. And, I, you know, I've read through the facts of this case, and it's not – here in Indianapolis, this would be a three-day trial. Right. I don't know how they string it out for three weeks. I just don't understand. Yeah, it. This, this is happening in Broward County in Florida. The timing of the song and the murders is really hazy because most reports state that the murders happened eight months after the song was released. However, many of his songs eerily describe factual evidence in the case. So whether he made a song and decided to make that reality or whether there's something else going on behind scenes and he had done this before and then happened to just do it again because you know it works is up up for discussion. It's one of those, it's one of the things we're hearing more and more about is uh, 
rap stars that are still living or, you know, even the ones that have made it, but are still living in this sort of gangster life. Uh, singing about real life events is, I mean, from a defense attorney's perspective, just incredibly stupid. Well, it's 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 kind of a negative feedback loop because a lot of these times these rappers uh, they they hang out with gangs to give them the persona that they're actually about that life when they're actually not. That you know, these are probably guys that just sat in their house all day making music, maybe smoke weed or do some drugs and other, but they're not actually out there doing gang shit. But they can they make relationships with these gangs so that way a they have protection, b they, they look more affiliated with this gang. And C, they can get into certain venues that are controlled by certain gangs that they otherwise would be shook down for and taken percentages of their cuts. Even though it's a public venue or you may be licensing it off someone else, if you don't pay off the gang, they're going to make sure nobody attends your show. Like they're going to shoot it off or they're going to do something like that. So you see these negative feedback loops where they do all this stuff for the rappers. Now the rapper starts getting famous and now they expect their dues to be paid. And they're trying to make... Some level of street credibility, I suppose. Exactly. So if the murders did happen after the song, it gives more credence to his friends trying to quote-unquote snake him. At this point, he would have been becoming extremely wealthy, extremely fast. And usually, when growing up around very poor people, um, at least I, I, I grew up a lot in the ghetto and from firsthand experiences, if you start to get money for yourself, you start to do wealthy for yourself, even though all these other people around you, most of the time they're not even trying or they're doing the bare minimum, they'll start to feel entitled to whatever slice of the pie you've earned. And, you know, that I've lost friends over, you know, just doing doing well for myself. And they felt like not, not even that I should put them on with a job or anything, but that I should just give them cash because in their eyes I have more than they do, and so they deserve it. Yeah, they, envy, envy is a, a terrible, <laughs> terrible emotion. So he's always claimed to have bipolar and split this uh, personality disorder, which is also called dissociative identity disorder. Most people assume that this was part of the persona and not actually reality, as he would reference the evil side of him named, quote-unquote, Melvin in many of his songs. However, it seems like in the court scenario, and which we'll talk about extensively later, is that he he's relying on this a lot. And uh, there's been interviews of him describing him having multiple personalities and the names that he has for these personalities, which once again will be heavily uh, recapped in the second episode. But um, even with these with these interviews, it, it people, would be something though that would be, you know, I guess to a degree it could be a it certainly could be a marketing ploy, you know, yeah. making yourself out to be, you know, n- sort of in, in that life, but also an extra layer of danger because you've got this this separate personalities that may come out and no one no no one knows when it's going to happen. Right, right. So it'll be interesting to see if that comes to what degree that comes out in the trial because um, you know, multiple personality disorders it's a that's a complex diagnosis and not one that is actually diagnosed very often. Right. So what's going on with the case? In October 2018, YNW Melly's best friend Cortland Henry, aka YNW Bortland. And keep in mind they all this was this was a group of friends, but it wasn't really a gang. They did have connections to gangs. Um, can't remember their exact names. I think it was like I think the gang was really called like G Unit or something like that, which would have callbacks to Fifty Cent. However, that is something that would be more explicitly mentioned in the second episode. So that's why I didn't want to mention it too much now. But despite them all saying Y and W, it was just it was basically Melly. Two decedents, and then uh, Cortland Henry, which is like one of his best friends. Henry, who are in the vehicle, but they play it up to be something completely different. Yeah, so 
like I said, I wanted to say that even though they all have Y and W before their name, they were they weren't really a gang like that, but they were affiliated with other gangs, as is typical, especially with rappers coming from Broward County specifically and Florida in general. So they showed up to a Miami area hospital claiming his friends were hit during a drive-by shooting. He said they were bleeding out inside his car. And this, this is all, Henry. Yeah, this is Henry saying this. And this is all according to the rapper's arrest affidavit. The rapper was not actually at the hospital during this time. Yeah, when they, when they go to the hospital, Melly's nowhere around. Yeah, he's not they're, there. They're acting like he's not involved at this point. So first responders and investigators found Anthony Williams, a.k.a. Y&W Sack Chaser, and Christopher Thomas, a.k.a. Y&W Juvie, with multiple gunshot wounds, and both were dead. Cortland Henry told detectives he had just left the recording studio with Williams and Thomas in Fort Lauderdale when a car pulled up and started shooting, police, stay, police say. Henry said he was able to duck from the bullets, but Williams and Thomas were hit. When officers showed up to the scene of the crime, police found no evidence that there had been a shooting. As officers continued to investigate, surveillance video showed Melly, Henry, Williams, and Thomas together in Henry's car when Henry claimed the shooting happened, and this was all stated in the arrest report. After looking at phone data and blood, step, uh, blood splatter evidence, Detectives said it was clear the group were together the night of the crime and that the victims had been shot inside the car, not shot at. Because of this, police arrested Melly for two counts of first-degree murder in February 2019. Forensic evidence implied that the gunshots came from within the car and the area where YNW Melly was sitting had gunshot residue and no bullet holes in the area he was sitting. Yeah, so it's really interesting that the probable cause affidavit in this case is out in the public. There's uh, so, so these guys, uh, what the... What the prosecutors alleging happened what the state's alleging happened is these guys are all four in the vehicle that something goes down in the vehicle where Melly uh decides to shoot these these two individuals end up being dead and to make it look like that's not what happened they stage it to be a drive-by shooting Melly's dropped off picked up by perhaps his manager but before they do that they fire shots into the side of the car all the shots are fired from on, into the right side or the passenger side of the vehicle, with the exception of one that's that's kind of hits back behind the um, the, the rear part of the vehicle, and um, they then the, the three gentlemen, including Henry, drive to the uh, the emergency room. Melly's no longer in the car, and they report it as a drive-by, and they've made it try to look like a drive-by by all these bullets being shot in the side of the car. Well, they report the location where this drive-by specifically or supposedly occurred and the police go to that location they literally shut down the roadway for several hours multiple miles of it too multiple miles of it scour it because you know anybody knows anything about a a drive-by shooting first off a drive-by shooting is usually you're literally driving by and darting away so there's almost always going to be shell casings to be found they look all over the area there's no sign that any shooting happened in that area at all so they wait, they get subpoenas and, and um, warrants for the cell phones of Melly and Henry, and they find out that they were on a di- totally different path than the area where they said the shooting occurred. So they go back, block off the road again on the path that they said that they were traveling on, and then lo and behold, they find eight shell casings um, on the roadway. They also find, and this is really interesting, because they fired um, some shots into the windows as well, and they found glass from uh, a clearer glass and then also a darker tinted glass, both that were consistent with the vehicle that was driven to the hospital. So um, now they've got shell casings and glass that match the vehicle. And it's and what's even more interesting, there's some of the glass on the other side of the road because they believe they made a U-turn uh, to drop off Melly and then to, 
then take him to the hospital. So now they found shell casings in a di- totally different area than where they said the shooting was happening. They've said the melee was not in the car, and they've got glass that is consistent with the, the windows that were broken on the car, all in a totally different location than when they said the shooting happened. So now that they know that there's there's you know what appears to be complete lies about where the shooting happened, they're raising their radar on whether or not they were being honest about everything else. So now they start digging in deeper and deeper. And one of the big mistakes that the states, the prosecutor is going to exploit on this thing, you know, to show that, show that they're lying is they find a casing inside of the vehicle. And that it's a fired casing as well. So And it matches the bullet wounds and the people. No, no, no. It matches the eight casings that are found on the road. Oh, so yeah, that, that's what it matches. They're saying yes, the yeah. shots happen from outside the car. That makes no sense that a casing would be found inside right, the car. Right, right. Unless they, like, ran up to it, but then that's not necessarily a drive-by. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about the, the, the Delphi, Indiana murder case, and they're matching a, an unfired casing uh, to a to firearm. This is totally different. These are actually fired casings. Those are Those leave identifiable marks on the casings, and they can tell that all of these casings, including the one inside the vehicle, are, are shot from the same weapon. So now they have a real suspicion that the fi- firearm and the shooting actually happened inside of the vehicle. Plus, the the bullet wounds and the people, I'm pretty sure they were left to right. The bullet wounds, so the, the, what they're alleging is that Henry is driving. The two decedents are in the front passenger seat and the rear passenger side, and uh, Melly is in the driver's side back seat. Yes. And so, yes, the gunshot wounds that kill... Uh, the two people in the vehicle are from the left side of their body exiting to the right. All the gunshots that are staged, or as they're alleging it, staged for the drive-by shooting are from the right side of the vehicle. So totally impossible. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't even make sense. And Unless the people are sitting backwards. Yeah, but nobody's nobody going to be that. doing that. And uh, when it comes to like analyzing bullet holes, <clears throat> I don't want to say it's obvious, <clears throat> but it can be pretty obvious because the entry wound is always much smaller than the exit wound. The exit wound tends to have a lot of velocity coming out with it. And so you can – I don't. it's kind of morbid, but there's a bigger chunk that comes out of the person when there's an exit wound, especially with bigger calibers like a forty caliber. And then when you're shooting metal, if a trajectory is going through metal – uh, you know, the first piercing would be inside, but then when it exits the metal, the there'd be fragments of metal splitting to the outside of the vehicle. So if there's fragments of metal from the right side pointing inward from the bullet holes, it would mean that it was shot from the right side of the car. Yeah, and and, and the the other part of it, the, the anatomically, when you have a decedent that suffered a gunshot wound, you can tell the the direction of travel from a bullet is the entry point, um, the skin on the entry point will actually be inward so the the wound will have an inward path you can actually see the skin the skin will be pointing inward into the actual wound on the exit wound the skin will be pointing outward uh, and it'll so, be a bigger chunk yeah and it's so it's one of the easiest things for a pathologist to look at and say yes this bullet traveled left to right and they can say it definitively this is this isn't like questionable science. This is a for sure type thing. There's also stippling yeah. on one of the victims. Stippling is when you fire a firearm no more than two feet away from someone. You know, it's an explosion. Up, up to three. Up to three feet, actually. So there's an explosion, and fire comes out of the gun. You know, it's very quick, but that fire can burn you. There can be singe marks on your face, on your clothes. And so that's called stippling in firearm forensics. And 
that's how you can tell how close the person was if they were extremely close. And one of the bodies had stippling on it. Yeah, so the the, the passenger in the back seat, so the one that you're alleging would have been sitting next to Melly, had stippling on his on his neck wound. The stippling will will give you a, a, a good estimate that so they know because they've tested firearms on uh, cadaver bodies to see how close that a gun has to be to leave burn, burn marks. And the stippling that, as Devin was just saying, can be anywhere from six centimeters to or six inches to up to three feet. But you have to be that closer. It won't leave the stippling. Now, why do you say six inches? Well, if you're closer to six inches, it'll actually leave a different type of mark. You'll actually see a burn, a burn mark that's consistent with the end of the barrel. And so that's when they'll say, if it's uh, if they see that type of a mark, then they'll say it's either contact or near contact when it's fired. If it's just the stippling, then they, that's why they'll say it's at least six inches. Because if it was within six inches, you'd have that different mark, and they would call it contact or near contact wound, like where somebody's doing the execution style and holding it right to their head. In this case, it was a stippling, which means the gun would have been about six inches to three feet, which would be consistent with the person in the passenger seat firing the weapon in uh, to the person sitting next to him. Now, the other thing that's that's interesting that they they and they did a you know at least by reading the probable cause affidavit. I haven't seen all the trial at this point yet, and we'll, we'll dive into that more on, on another episode. The investigators did a pretty good job. They did, a, they did trajectory or used trajectory rods on every um, uh, entrance point from the shots that were fired on the outside of the vehicle. None of them are in any way traveling in a way that could have caused the directional wounds of the two people that died in the car. However, the trajectory of the bullets for both victims is consistent with having been fired from a person sitting in the Next spot where Melly was. Right. And so both the passenger driver side or passenger front, passenger uh, uh, rear on the passenger side of the vehicle have wounds that are consistent with a pathway that would have been fired from the seat they're saying that Melly was in. They didn't recover the gun. Um, and that ends up becoming really important with the next podcast that we'll talk about because the firearms instructor basically shows up and gives his testimony at trial and basically says he can't definitively say that Melly had did this because he, he can't find the gun. One thing that does lean in Melly's favor is that he didn't have any gunshot residue on his body. Um, and, of course, you know, he, he had time to clean it off and everything. Um, so I, knowing, I, knowing from someone who shot firearms, if you shot it inside a vehicle, I feel like you would have firearm residue all over you, gunpowder gun all over you. Uh, but Brad thinks that it'd be very easily to get it off of you. Yeah, gunshot residue is is something that's not even utilized by law enforcement that much anymore. It's it's um, easily transferable. So if you hand me a firearm that's been fired at any recent time, I would have some residue likely picked up off of that from just holding the firearm itself. Uh, it's also extremely easy to, to wash off of your hands and your arms. And in, if you wash your clothing through a cycle in the laundry, it would likely be washed off there. It's so easily transferable that for several years, the um, the FBI has been banned from using it in terms of providing evidentiary, uh, any evidence in the case that they're investigating. So they consider us so unreliable that they don't even use it in cases in the FBI. So to say gunshot residue proves or doesn't, or disproves anything is, is really kind of a misnomer. It's not something that's considered very reliable science anymore just because it is so easily it's a powder it can transfer 
very easily from one person to another. And can tra- if you if you fire a firearm and then turn around and shake that person's hand, give them a fist bump, you probably have some gunshot residue on your hand from just right, doing that. Right. So it's really not considered a very reliable piece of evidence. So I don't know that 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 will carry a whole lot of weight. Um, one of the thing, other things they used in the, the probable cause, they did a lot of uh, work with the cell phones um, because they were saying Melly wasn't in the vehicle. Melly and Henry's cell phones are pinging in exact same locations together during the time this car would have been, been being driven around. So that sort of undermined some of what they're saying. And that's how, that's how they found the original place where they where it actually happened. Right where the cell casings were. Because, yeah, because they, yeah, they ended up doing the same thing where they cased uh, a stretch of road. And the place where they actually ended up finding out where the, fi- where the firearm casings were was uh, it was like a rural stretch of road in like the middle of the woods. Correct. And they, tri- they triangulated their pins uh, through location services, and that's where they found that. And they blocked off that road, and that's where they actually ended up finding the evidence. Now... Melly's uh, Melly's reasoning behind this is that multiple people use that phone, including his mom, him, and his girlfriend, and a few other people. Um, so he he's kind of throwing his family under the bus. Well, he he said that there were other people uh, in his group in his collective. I, I don't I don't want to call it a gang because they really didn't do any gang activity. And as as we'll see later in the episodes, that uh, he was honestly pushing back against the gang, which is probably why this happened. Um, but it, it still seems like a shitty excuse in my opinion, but from the jail calls and everything, they, they did like, he has said multiple times in the jail phones that they have recorded that he, he knows that other people are using that phone and other, other, like it's known that other people use that phone. Yeah. Uh, where it runs into a little bit of an issue with, with that as well. They have them on video getting in the vehicle. Right. So they know he did get in the vehicle that he saying he wasn't ever in the vehicle they know is, is. Not true. And then they can trace from the point of the recording studio until shortly before the vehicles drive to the hospital that his, 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 the phone he would have had is pinging all the way back to the recording studio, all the way to the point of right before they take the, the two gentlemen that end up dying. Um, to it's the one hospital. of those situations where if you just didn't talk, you'd probably be a lot better off. Because uh, it's all, it's about reasonable doubt, right? But if you're lying and you're proving that you're, they're able to prove that you're lying. I mean, that just solidifies the reasonable doubt that they you have something to hide. Consciousness of guilt, when right? You do things that are, and that's one of the easiest tricks for prosecutors to use. Is if if he's doing things to hide what he did, he's doing that because he knew he did something wrong, right? Uh, and they'll hammer that. The other really uh, kind of crucial evidence that they have on on Melly, um, he FaceTimed, uh, I believe it was his then it was girlfriend, his girlfriend at the time, uh, and his his girlfriend's mother heard it and talked about being in a drive by shooting, which is the exact thing he said he was not uh, a part of. He claimed he was not in the drive by shooting, but he tells his girlfriend that he was. The mother overhears that and says he had some appeared to be nervous and things of that nature but also uh he does in one of his raps very close in proximity to this case talk about having been involved in a drive-by shooting uh again he said he wasn't in the drive-by shooting and the drive-by shooting was the the reason they say that he didn't do this but then he's talking about being involved in the drive-by shooting so he started undermines and stubs his own toe a couple different times and and both one of the songs, they actually referenced the song in his probable cause affidavit, and then also with a conversation uh, with his mom, or with his girlfriend's mom. Um, now we'll see, and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we go into the trial side of it. The the you know there's some 
questions about some of the mom's testimony. She's not very happy about being a witness. and Yeah, claims the state is intimidating her, as well as the prosecution has done some really underhanded stuff. There's a lot of people saying that the prosecution has completely bundled or bungled the case, as well as um, just some suspicious things going on, like they couldn't find YNW Melly's uh, DNA evidence anywhere in the car whatsoever. And then when the trial started, they did it again, and this time they found his evidence, but only on uh, the back handle of the car. Yeah, that's an interesting fact. That, uh, and, and especially since the first time they, they claimed to not find any, so the, the defense is kind of – one of the questions that the defense asks um, the fingerprint expert is right. if he can change the results if the prosecution asks him to. And, of course, he says no, but you all know about political pressure. And so stuff. is it a fingerprint that's found on the, on the handle? Uh, they say DNA. Okay. I, I, I should say DNA, not fingerprint. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Two totally yeah, different things. Yeah. So yeah, just to give a little a little background on how that works, touch DNA uh, is what that would be. Touch DNA is different than others. You know, your, your DNA is found in any bodily fluid. So if you've if you've left saliva, blood, sweat, semen, any of those things, those those are good sources of DNA. Blood and semen. Um, it's in your sweat too, vaginal right? Vaginal fluid. Those are very good sources. Sweat to a degree, but less harder to harder to capture, just because your body doesn't produce it in the volume that it does right. the other other things. But then there's also something that's called um, touch DNA. So anytime you're touching something, you're flaking off uh, skin cells. And those skin cells contain DNA in them. So anytime you're in a place that is uh, has a surface that you're touching, you are leaving fingerprints behind potentially. Um, but also you're leaving behind what's called touch DNA, and that's those skin cells. Those can be very helpful in cases and sometimes can provide great evidence. But touch DNA is also a little bit like gunshot residue and that it can be it's easily it can be easily transferable, meaning um, if I touch a uh, an item and then I carry that item into another place, that it's possible that some of that DNA will flake off item one onto item two, even though I wasn't necessarily touching physically item number two. And in theory, even individuals could transfer one person's touch DNA to another location. It's also kind of like a fingerprint in that it doesn't have a time stamp date to it. Right, right. right. You touch something two days before uh, a murder, uh, that doesn't mean you were there. The fingerprint doesn't mean you were there the day of the murder. Same thing with touch DNA. You could have touched something, left some touch DNA behind. As long as the environment hasn't been disturbed significantly, it may still be there two, three, even a week later. And so it is helpful. It's helpful information. Uh, it's it's a bit unusual to find it on a, a door handle like that because that's a relatively unstable environment and that it's a, an, a, a um, piece of a vehicle that would be touched, touched frequently. Yeah. Um, and you also don't touch it for long periods of time, touching it very quickly and then, and then leaving it alone. But it's also an item you're kind of grabbing. So uh, not completely crazy that you would find it there but you know again pretty good police work if they did find it in an appropriate way um the other thing also from a defense attorney's perspective you also have to be cognizant of with, with touch dna is how did they collect it um one of the one of the things i i talk about frequently in like trainings and stuff that i do is if you're going to swab a, a firearm for touch dna don't use the same swab all over the entire gun because you're going to transfer it, right? Well, you you have now you may be found touch DNA on that gun, and I can now say, okay, the DNA was found on that gun, but was it on the barrel? Was it on the trigger? Was it on the handle? Was it on the magazine? 
I don't know. So different swab for every single component Absolutely. of the gun? Absolutely. Every part, every different piece of the gun, you should be using a different swab. So I can say, because hell, touch DNA found on a trigger. It's a lot different well, than like a slide. Right. Or, or, or yeah. even the handle, which maybe just means you handled the gun. But if it's... A trigger's so small, though. Like, is it easy to get? Like, can you really get... T- especially with how, like, some firearms, you know, they have stippling and uh, the... The handle of the firearm, you know, like they tend to have grips and stuff like that. If rigid you've done any, edges, you, yeah, and anything that you've done special to your firearm, even the slide can have rigid edges. Uh, so with like, a, especially much harder like, to find a fingerprint on, especially with like Glock triggers, right? They have that like extra little bump out, and that's mm-hmm. like their version of a safety, which All is right. a shitty safety. But um, you would think that'd be really hard to get a fingerprint or DNA off of fingerprint on any uh, rigid. Edge is almost impossible because you need a flat surface, flat, smooth surface, ideally, because you're leaving behind oil, and that oil needs to be able to be examined for the different ridge marks within the fingerprint. And if you have a, a ragged, a, a rugged edge or a non-flat surface, it's almost never going to give a imprint that's going to be left and be able to be lifted. Touch DNA, however, is different. A skin cell can literally rest into the smallest of things. They're teeny tiny. So could you find it on trigger? Sure. Um, is it as likely probably as like the handle or the slide? Probably not just because you're touching larger areas of, of the item with bigger parts of your hand than just your finger, but it's certainly possible. But if you don't use different swabs for different parts of the gun, then you've limited the value of that evidence by saying, okay, it was on the gun, but we don't know what part, especially on this case, when you're talking about, uh, a rifle or, um, uh, I think it was maybe it was just a regular uh, firearm in this case. I don't I don't recall. That's uh, a large a larger item where it's touched is you know handle versus trigger, and quite honestly, slide is a bigger importance too. Because if you're racking the gun, that's a bigger indicator that you're using it to shoot as opposed to if it's on the handle and you're just handling it. Right, right. So that's something that it, that's uh, interesting about. Um, touch DNA too. And, you know, here it's on the car handle. I mean, from what at least I understand, this is a car that Melly was in and out of with some frequency. So to find his DNA in it is not necessarily earth shattering or great evidence. Right. Uh, But some indication he was in that side of the vehicle somewhere close to the time Uh, of the shooting. I I will say the detectives seem to do outstanding work. um, And just from what I've seen with the trial so far, it really just seems like the prosecution is uh, bungling it. Now, of course, I don't know how the prosecution side of things works uh, to the full extent, but it it just seemed like they made – it's been a fiasco in the courtroom, and it seemed like they made an easy case hard for nothing. Well, that's sort of something to, to know about prosecutors' offices that you know, especially in the dynamics we've had of our economy and and uh, how easy it is to fluctuate between jobs right now. Prosecutor jobs are very difficult to to keep full, and so the experience of the prosecutors that are trying cases right now probably is at a lower level than what has been. She over is much an time. assistant deputy prosecutor, like she's the assistant deputy to the elected. Yeah, and in a case like this, you'd expect them to put one of their best trial lawyers right. up front to it. Yeah, you know, one of the other sort of... She's been absolutely roasted for how she's handling she? the case, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that people you know forget, these are people that are trained to be lawyers, right? They're trained to be advocates. They're trained on rules of evidence. They're trained on how to question witnesses and make objections. But when you get into cases that involve a lot of forensic science and DNA and things of that nature, there's a lot of science that you don't know any more than the next guy. So how good of a quality your presentation is going to be in a trial is going to be very dependent on how good of a witness you have. 
And as somebody that's tried a bunch of murder cases, I can tell you, um, you know, you put a there are pathologists that I've uh, have questioned that uh, that speak very poorly in terms of their English, and it's hard for the jury to even understand them. All the way up to people pathologists who are very plain speaking and can relate to a jury very well and are very relatable. And then there's some that come off as very arrogant and look like it's a waste of time. So there's only so much that some of the prosecutors can can do. And that's also true with uh, crime scene techs, crime scene techs that collect evidence. Um, some of them are really good at job and some of them don't do a, a, don't always do a great job. And, and, you know, that's something the prosecutor can't control. They they're stuck with whatever they got when the right. case was put together. <clears throat> so something we talked about earlier was that he had multiple personalities. So this is going to be claims that multiple personalities. Yeah, claims. Like I said, a lot of people think it's part of his persona, and now he may be capitalizing on it because of the trial. But this is something that he's gone to an extensive uh, discussion with before in interviews. Uh, his one of his most popular songs was with Kanye West. It's called Mixed Personalities. Um, except that one's more about him being with a woman uh, who has mixed personalities. Um, so, and related to his multiple personalities, he claims that there are six different personalities, all with names and different attributes. So during interviews prior to his incarceration, he claims he can only show three of his quote-unquote other personalities and that the other three can't be released until next year. So that doesn't these, even make sense. Yeah, these words give credence to the thought that he doesn't actually have multiple personalities and that it may just be a persona he has adopted for his rap figure because... As far as I know, you can't really, like, you can, you have some level of control of them coming out, but not really. Like, you can learn to at least feel when they're coming out. Well, don't, isn't there at least some, with true multiple personality disorder, isn't it true that some of the personalities don't necessarily know that the others exist? Yeah. So, like, if you're in personality number three, you don't know that your regular or what would be your normal personality is even a thing. Yeah. So, I don't know. It seems like. It, to say he's going to release new personalities, yeah, next year, like it's a new song, exactly. <laughs> and it seems like he was That's setting it up suspect. for a new song. He has a very so, like I said, with the very popular song Kanye West, this had reached the Billboard Hot 100. Um, and earlier during a promotional interview for that mixed personality songs, he stated at this time that he only had two personalities, Melly and Melvin. Now. As as it gets longer and after the song releases, of course, that's when he says he has six. But during this time, he has two. He said Melly and Melvin and each get 12 hours and that the latter usually doesn't surface until nighttime. Most recently, he has said, of course, that he still has three current personalities. The other three aren't released yet. And he says that they are Marcus, Melvin, and YNW Melly. He claims only Melvin and his YNW Melly persona rap. So Give, I'm guessing the next three will be, oh, uh, let's see, what what other M names are out there? Uh, we got Marcus, Melvin, Mel, Mike, Mike, Mike would be a good one. Um, Monty, maybe. I don't know, maybe Montana, and he's going like the whole uh, Joey Montana <laughs> route or something. <laughs> it's just interesting that they all have M names, right? So, given descriptions of his three current personalities, he describes Melvin as the one that's not playing no games. He will get on your ass, as in basically Melvin is the, the tough guy. Yeah, he's the violent one. He says his Melly personality is cool, he's funny, more chilled out, but he's cocky. And, of course, that's the one who is his stage persona. He represents him to be his normal personality, yeah. I guess. Yeah. He says Marcus' personality is the more low-key, non-famous personality who can walk down the street with sunglasses on and a hat on and nobody can recognize him. He says you can tell when he's in his quote-unquote Marcus personality when he's wearing his shades and hat and talks with a different lingo than his other personalities do 
and he acts like he's a completely normal person. Doesn't every celebrity do that when they don't want to be recognized in public? Yeah, it kind of just it, it kind of just seems like if fans come up to him, he can just be like, I'm Marcus. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. And they kind of have like a way to not talk to them. <laughs> exactly. All right. Based on his Instagram and Twitter postings, he has insinuated that if he were to be violent, it wouldn't actually be him, but his Melvin persona as the Melly persona is more chilled out and not likely to be prone to violence. He is actually diagnosed with having bipolar disorder and claims to be diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. I'm unsure if this has came out in the trial yet. I'm pretty sure with trial you have to show medical records, right, if you're going to be making this claim? Yeah, and quite honestly, this this isn't a good defense, saying that you know, Marcus did this, not Melly, is or Melvin did this, not Marcus, or whatever, is not going to be a good defense. So most of the time um, you can claim to be mentally ill, but not guilty due to mental illness. Yeah, is, is, more like you'll just get uh, guilty by reason of insanity, or, or yeah, not guilty by reason of insanity, but then you're still going to spend your life in a mental hospital. Well, here in Indiana, we have a guilty but mentally ill. And all that means, yes, is that your sentencing is exactly the same as if you had just been found guilty. But when you're serving your prison time, they're supposed to be providing, providing mental health services to you. That is not in any way a great result for you. Well, providing mental health services in a jail isn't really going to do too much for you. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, guilty but mentally ill, it does get you treated a little bit differently in terms of what facilities they'll, put, they'll place you in, but you're still in prison. He's very vocal about the drugs he had to take, especially through his childhood and stuff. He says he's been given a litany of drugs and that they rarely ever made it better, which that is very typical for people with dissociative identity disorder. One he was very vocal about was Adderall. He claimed that it made his symptoms worse, that it made him more violent, that um, it seemed to just accelerate it, uh, how often his persona switched. I will say uh, another thing that gives credence to the fact that this is um, um, bullshit, his multiple personalities, is that he says each one gets 12 hours a day and that the other one usually services at night. It seems as if... Uh, or 12 hours a day, where's, where's the third one coming to play? It, right. Well, there's that. Uh, or they're plus, on 12 hour cycles, maybe. I mean, uh, maybe that's a thing. Like, you know, I'm not a no, psychologist, I, but I, I, from my experience, I was with a girlfriend who had multiple personalities and uh, they could switch like in the blink of an eye and she wouldn't know she was doing it. She'd be a drastically different person. And it was the most terrifying fucking thing. Yeah. There's a great, great old movie. Most of the people from my generation probably would know it. I watched it in my. Um, high school psychology class by the name of Sybil. And Sybil documents a really the mental health journey of a person that truly had been diagnosed with multiple personalities. If I remember right, she had like seven or eight different personalities. We had to write a whole paper on it at the time. But it was not a predictable thing for her. It wasn't something that she could turn off and turn on. No, a lot of times they don't even know what's happening. Yeah, it didn't have a set schedule. Right, and you certainly didn't know that there was new ones about to release. Right, <laughs> that's not a thing. A lot of times, you only know because once you switch back to yourself, you see other things that have happened, or other people tell you, like, "Hey, this has happened," and you know that that's not any of your current personalities. But they, it is true that they would be distinctly different, and there would be some that would be maybe more violent or more uh, reserved or, or more feminine or Absolutely. more manly. Some may have some mental disorders that the other one doesn't. Yeah. If you haven't ever had a chance to watch Sybil, I highly recommend it. It really gives you a good sense of uh, what it was, what it's like to have suffered uh, multiple personality disorder and also some of the root causes of it. And the Sybil character was violently abused by her mother when she was a child. Like her mother would boil 
uh, water and pour boiling water on her as a penalty for for misbehaving. Yeah, it does say that a lot of this stuff stems, uh, especially dissociative identity disorder, stems from a lot of childhood trauma, like very vicious trauma, and that and that their their personality is basically splintered and fractured as a way to protect itself, and so it would bring up our bring out a new personality as a way for the brain to protect the current one. Right. Um, one, I don't want to say good. I'll say it's good at first, and then the end kind of t- turns it like into fantasy. And because of this, they never made a second one, at least not yet. But was the movie Split with Shia LaBeouf, and that's where um, came out like three or four years ago. But he kidnaps these children, um, and one moment he's like super nice with them, and then the next moment he's like trying to kill them. And one personality's trying to give them help, and the other one's not. And it's, it, I'm pretty sure it shows that he was uh, like tortured as a child from his right. mom and extremely abused. Uh, the reason why I feel like it never got made a second one was because at the very end he ends up splitting into a new personality and he turns into like an actual grotesque monster like his his human form like switches and turns like Hulk Hogan well like he turns into like a monster Hulk Hogan uh, what's the Marvel character the green guy Hulk the Hulk the Incredible Hulk not Hulk Hogan this guy (laughs) this guy (laughs) maybe that's what he had uh, yeah, yeah, okay. He's the Hulk. Uh, but I think that's why, because a lot of people really didn't like the ending. They thought that it was saying people with dissociative identity identity disorder were monsters on the inside and whatnot, and they got a lot of flack for that. But outside of, like, the last two minutes or 30 seconds or so, I, I would say it's a very good movie. It's one that I, I remember quite often. Um, so... Other than that, this is something that's not really studied too extensively because it's so rare. It's a very rare, it's a very rare disease, and uh, so we'll we'll see how that ends up getting played out in the in Melly's trial. If it does get played out, we'll touch more on that again in our future episodes. You know, it's a tricky thing to do to try to say you weren't involved, but if you were, you were mentally ill. So that's right. a, it's a very di- tough defense to navigate. My guess is that he's going all in and trying to just say he wasn't. It wasn't him, and so that's where they'll, we'll probably see the defense uh, focus on. So we will do an, another episode following up on this uh, YNW Melly case and where it's going to go from a trial perspective, hit more on what the defenses and the prosecutions hitting. We're going to let that develop a little bit more and, and uh, follow up with another episode, really um, tapping into the trial and how that's going. So hopefully you'll join us for that as well. And uh, continue to share and uh the podcast and, and and spread the word for us we appreciate listening and this has been another episode of pocket wall talks see ya